0: Amen. What a great and glorious truth that is! God so loved the world that He came to save. May we forever sing our wonderful truth together. If you would pray with me one more time this morning, and we'll dive in together, Father, we love you, and we thank you for that wonderful truth that we have in you, Father, that you loved the world so much, Father, that you gave us your son, Father, that you would reconcile us back to yourself. Father, an undeserving sinner as me, Father, you have called me, you've chosen me, Father, that we ought to live for you in your glory. Father, I pray that that truth would just ring out in our hearts this morning, Father, we confess this morning that we are in desperate need of you. Father, we don't want to hear any words of my own that I have to say, but Father, we want to hear your word through me. So Father, we just ask, Father, that the Spirit would go in our hearts, and Father, he would move, Father, and just do a work in us. Father, as we hear your word, as we hear your truth this morning. So Father, we confess this. In your name, we trust in you. It's in Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, last Sunday, Pastor Micah preached on tithing, and you came back. This Sunday, uh, or or I should say, Micah mentioned last Sunday um, (laughs) that he was going to preach tithing and disappear, and that you couldn't say anything to him and he disappeared. He left, right? And I told him, it's okay, Micah, it's good, because the Lord saw it fit for me to preach about reconciliation, so we can reconcile together. And honestly, as I was uh, deciphering through what I felt the Lord was calling me to preach, um, to be frank with you, I just thought this passage would be really easy. But as I was studying through it, it really, to be honest, became very difficult for me for many reasons, because I think there's a simple truth that's just echoed throughout this text. However, it means a whole lot, and it's pretty weighty for us as believers. And so turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and before we really dive into the text, I just want to kind of lay the framework down for you of what's happening in this together. You see, in this Text Here's a few things that we're going to see together. This passage reminds us simply of the work God has done for us in and through Jesus Christ. And what the work Christ has done for us ought to do is draw us into the very heart of God. I believe that this text presents us the heart of God. And if we understand the heart of God, then that ought to change the way we view others. Okay? It ought to change the way we see others to see them as the way the Lord sees them. And So in this light, we are moved to see that our life as a believer is not our own. But our life is for Christ and his glory. Our life is to be lived for the glory of Christ alone, that he would be lifted high and he would be made known. So in this, in this we are given this gift and prompted to carry the ministry of Reconciliation. Right? That's a summary of this passage. And so as we unpack these different truths, I think there's a couple of questions that will help us navigate this text together as we walk through it. And those questions are this. First, it's simply, what does it mean to be reconciled? What does it mean to be reconciled? I think asking that question as we read this text would prove helpful. And if God reconciles us back to himself... Then, how should we respond? If God is in the work of reconciling us back to Himself, then how does that truth cause us to respond accordingly? These two questions will help us as we dive into the text together. A few years ago, you may remember, um, just down the road in Dallas, an event happened. Former police officer Amber Geiger made a horrific, devastating, and costly mistake. After working a police shift, Amber came home and found a man, Botham Jean, in her apartment. Now, obviously, she was alarmed and scared, but her feelings led her to shoot and kill him. Now, the problem here, Amber wasn't in her apartment. Amber was in Botham Jean's apartment. A horrible, horrendous tragedy had just occurred. And rightfully, many people were outraged by this, of course. And when this hit the news outlets and the media, they grabbed hold of this. The problem was only magnified, of course, because for the media... They wanted to make sure we knew that what happened in this situation was a white police officer had just killed an innocent black man. So the ramifications of this event were huge. They were huge. People were outraged. But if you don't know the story, or maybe you just never really heard the next part of that case, because, of course, this truth didn't really get pushed quite the same way as the initial narrative. But what happened next was beautiful and remarkable. You see, Botham Jean, the man that was killed, he had a, had a little brother. And at the time of the incident, the little brother was 18 years old, just 18 years old students. His name was Brant Jean. And on the day of Amber's trial in the courtroom, Brant, took the stand to give his victim impact statement. And I want you to hear what Brant's words were in this moment. Eighteen-year-old kid, just lost his brother tragically. And he chooses to say this, I can speak for myself, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I don't think anyone can say, again, I speak for myself, not even on behalf of any of my family, but I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did. I I personally want the best for you. I wasn't going to say this in front of my family or anyone. I don't even want you to go to jail. I, I want the best for you. I know that's what Botham would want for you. And the best would be to give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that Botham would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible. Can I give her a hug, please? This 18-year-old kid branching. Isn't that remarkable? So he pleads to the judge And the judge allows him to give Amber a hug. And as you can imagine, there's just silence and sobbing as they embrace. This beautiful picture of forgiveness in the gospel was on display. How could Brant forgive such a wrong? How could he forgive such a wrong that had been done? Well, in short, because of Jesus. Because of Jesus brand new Jesus. And that brings us to the first point that will just kind of help drive as we dive into the text together. And it's this. Forgiveness opens the door for reconciliation. Okay, hear that. Forgiveness opens the door for reconciliation. And so, Let's look into the passage where we're going to be today. 2 Corinthians 5. We're going to start in verse 11 together. And verse 11 begins with the word therefore. And as I'm sure you've heard many times when you see the word therefore in the text, you need to look and see what it's there for. Okay, so before we dive into that text, I just want to just kind of summarize a little bit of what's going on right up leading into this part of the text and right before in the verses ahead, uh, Paul is just describing, uh, right, this dwelling, tent dwelling, right, and how that can uh, be swayed and tossed. But what we have is a stronghold in our heavenly dwelling, safe and secure. And that's what we long for. We long to be with the Lord as a believer that we know we are His. But then he fleshes out this idea well, what does what that mean then if I'm away from the Lord if I'm not home and he fleshes out the 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 thought that well whether I'm away or I'm at home all that I do should be aimed to please the Lord so in this life until the Lord calls me home to be with him then believer we should live in such a way that would honor the Lord so that others would be made known Sorry, so that Christ would be made known to others. So let's pick it up in verse 11 here together. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. I'm going to stop right there. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others others. What is the fear of the Lord? Man, we see see that phrase, the fear of the Lord, throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, calls us to fear the Lord. That kind of seems odd. It seems strange. And a lot of us don't really delve into what that really means. Why should we fear the Lord? That doesn't make a lot of sense. Some of your translations may even use the word terror, right? Some of your translations might use the word because we know the terror of Of the Lord, terror of the Lord, fear of the Lord. What what is going on here? I just I just want to share just just a couple quick references uh, that might help us in this. Uh, An Old Testament reference, Proverbs nine ten says, "The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom." New Testament reference, Philippians two twelve and thirteen. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. When on the surface, we're thinking, oh, work out salvation with fear and the fear and trembling. Like, what? that doesn't make sense. Or, uh, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. How does how does that work? And we're not talking about just being scared of God or whatever. When we talk about fear, right? Words like reverence and respect might come to mind. And what, what what's getting at in this fear of the Lord that we really need to look into is that we would stand in All before a holy God. Now, first, in fearing the Lord, it helps remind us and turn our attention to know that we have a holy God. And that means he is perfect, he is omnipotent, which just means he's all powerful and he's good in every way. And then that in turn turns to our perspective of us. That we are sinners. And that how could this holy God look on a sinner? Well, then we realize what we deserve. Because we've put God in his right place of a holy God, and then us in contrast as wretched sinners. And yes, that, that ought to let us see a holy God and then cry, Woe to me! Woe to me, a wretched sinner. But what's beautiful in this as we heed the call to fear the Lord and we see the Lord in all of his majesty and all of his righteousness, yet this holy God who we lift high then draws near to us. Not that we do something and work our way to God, but a holy God draws near to the sinner. So we fear the Lord, knowing the work that the Lord has done for us, right? As a believer, we know apart from the Lord in our sin, we are objects of God's wrath. We, in our sin, are objects of God's wrath, yet those who are in Jesus know he has delivered us. That's good news. Because we couldn't do that. When we understand our rightful positioning in relation to the Lord, there is nothing we can do. We are subject to death. Objects of God's wrath. But the Father sends the Son to stand in our place that we have been delivered from our sin. That's a glorious truth to be reminded of. And so in that Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And notice it says to persuade, not manipulate. We don't have to manipulate anything. In fact, manipulation is to be deceived. Manipulation is to your detriment. When somebody wants to manipulate you, they're trying to manipulate you into something that won't be for your good. It may be for their good, but it's not going to be for you. But when we persuade others, persuade is to persuade you to experience something that we believe is better. We believe that this is better and it's good. And so we would persuade others so that they would experience the goodness of the Lord, that they would taste and see the Lord and who he is and his holiness and knowing the work that he has done for them, that they would see and know truth. Let's continue. Pick it up halfway through verse 11. But what we are are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Now remember what, what's going on here, okay? The, the Corinthians, right? We, we know this is the second letter that, that Paul has written to the Corinthians. And what we know of the church in Corinth is that it was pretty corrupt. A lot of things were going on. And in the first letter that Paul writes to them He's really having to rebuke and correct a lot of things that's going on. And what we know in this, right, is that Paul has established this church. He was their leader, but in what they were doing and who they were, really, really they rejected Paul as their leader, right? They, they rejected Paul as their, their leader. And why is that? Well, they disapproved of his way of life. They disapproved of him because he was poor. He endured hardships and suffering. Often, Paul was left left homeless. He was simply unimpressive. His outward appearance really had nothing to offer, nothing that they gravitated to. But what we see throughout this letter of 2 Corinthians is that now Paul has pointed out what's going on in the wrong, but he's really working here to reconcile with the Corinthians. He's really working to reconcile with them because he shows shows often that he has forgiven them. And he wants them to see not not as man would look, but as the Lord sees, right? 1 Samuel 16, 7. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You see, the Corinthians had been exposed to more wealthy and impressive people. They were appealing to the eye. They thought less of Paul, and in some ways they were ashamed of him. Some of them thought Paul was just crazy. To live in such a way, to do the things that he's doing, and what he's been through, he's just crazy. People thought Jesus was crazy. People thought Jesus was crazy. We know what Jesus had come to do. And all Paul's trying to do here is just to get them to the heart of the matter. He's trying to get them to the heart to see that, okay, you may look at me and you may say, well, if I'm out of my mind, it's for the Lord. Because you just don't understand. If I'm in my right mind, it's for you. And Paul's saying, what I do in this life is to please the Lord. I live in such a way to please and honor the Lord that he would be made known. Not for personal gain. Not to impress you. Paul would be the first to say, my life isn't impressive. But Christ is. So his aim isn't for personal gain. It's not for the approval of man. And he is just pleading with the Corinthians to understand and to see the work that Christ has done in him and that he has done for them as well. Well, Let's continue. We'll pick up in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded that this that one has died for all therefore all have died and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised the beginning of verse 14 we see that we are compelled by the love of christ we are compelled by the love Of Christ, my translation says we are controlled, right? But what's going on here is that, look, love does something to us, right? On on its surface, we see love, right, makes us do some crazy things. Um, When Jessica and I first started dating, we were in love. We were young, and we just wanted to be around each other, and especially students, don't do this, don't waste your time, but we would stay out to like 2 or 3 in the morning. Why? Because we just wanted to be together. We wanted to be around each other. And Jessica must have loved me a whole lot more. See, I was, I was smart enough to know at least staying out that late. In college, I had worked my schedule where I didn't have morning classes, so I could sleep. Jessica ran track and cross-country in, in college, and so she had to get up at like 5 or 6 in the morning to run right? Love compelled her to do dumb things, right? Love still compels us today. We just had our fourth kid, lots of children, because we love each other. The Lord has blessed us in that. But really what what we want you to see in that is this, is that God's love for us controls us. If we understand God's love for us, it moves us. And make note that it's God's love for us. Not not our love for Christ and which compels us, but the love of God that he has for you and me that controls us. Do you see that? The love of God for you and me is so great that it compels us. Romans 5, 8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us so that we would live for him. There's no greater love than that, than that which Jesus has done for us on the work of of the cross, that we would live for him, that we would so be controlled and compelled by the love of God for us to live in such a way that he would be made known. And as we look in this passage, right, at the end of verse 14 says that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him. Sometimes we get caught up reading this text in the word all. Sometimes we look at all and we're like, wait, well, who's the all? What does this mean for us? And how does this apply and work itself out? Look, we could have a great theological conversation, debate on the all here. And there's a a time and place for that. But right now, I just want you to see one thing here. What What we do know that is true is that not all will die and be with the Lord in heaven. There is a hell that is real. Not everyone will die and believe, right? And so what we know is that the all is all whom would believe that we have died in him so that we who live, live for Christ. But what, what I want you to know about, and they died for all, the work that Christ does on the cross through the death of Jesus Christ, the atoning work done, is sufficient. It is definite. It is not limited in its ability to do what He set out to do, it is not limited in its power, it's not limited in its efficiency to accomplish the task at hand. It is limited in its application. And what that means is, it's limited in its application because the atoning work of Christ is reserved for you, child of God, believer. It's reserved for you. And that's a beautiful, glorious realization. Because what that means is that Christ wasn't just on the cross and God didn't put his son through that just to say merely, oh, I hope I can do this and people might believe and they might come. No, no, no. Christ sent in his sovereignty, knowing with you on his mind, that he went and he said, I will die for you so that you will come back for me. You were on his mind. That's a beautiful work, knowing that his atoning work would be accomplished because he called you and he chose you. That's a beautiful realization because we can't do that and we can't obtain that work on our own. And so Christ, out of his love for you, did that, and it was definite, and it was sufficient for you who he called, for the all who would believe. So what does that do for us? What does that do for us? You see, we have been purchased, we have been bought with a price. We are safe and secure by the blood of the perfect, spotless, sacrificial lamb. That Christ lived a perfect life that we could not. That he was the perfect sacrificial lamb. Standing in our place so that we could be reconciled to God. Again, that's good news. And that good news, believer, cannot leave us unchanged. It cannot leave us unchanged. It has to do something so that all who have died in him have called to live for him. Why? Because we don't know who the all who believe are. The Lord in his sovereignty knows who he has called, but we haven't, so what do we do with that? Well, we carry this heart Knowing what God has done to reconcile us back to Himself, and we tell others. We should be implored to tell others so that they too may hear and believe. God has allowed us and invited us to participate so that we would tell others so that they too may hear and believe. Because you see, for the one that God has called, the Lord is patient. He is patiently waiting for you to hear so that your heart would believe and you would follow him. And you would live your life for him. The Lord is patient with us whom he has called. Let's continue on. Verse 16 From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. And therefore, if anyone in Christ is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so again, what Paul is doing here is we see that he has a call for us and says, Do not look at the appearance of the flesh, but to the substance of the heart. Don't look at the appearance of somebody's flesh, but at the substance of the heart. We look no longer at somebody according to the flesh. Even Christ, although regarded once in the flesh, thus no longer, right? He's trying to get to the point of what's really going on, what's really happening, right? Paul saw Jesus in the flesh, and Paul misjudged him. All right, don't forget who Paul was, Right? Paul, the same man, Saul, who sought to kill Christians and believers, sought to imprison them and punish them. He wanted an end of the advancement of the gospel. But then the resurrected King Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus, and it changed everything. Paul's eyes were opened that he would see The glorious work that Christ had done for him and it changed everything. He was a new creation. The old was gone. But Christ had made him a new creation to live according for his purposes and will. The magnitude of what Christ has done for us shifts our perspective. When our perspective is changed, It shifts our focus to see others in a different light. Right, if we would stop looking at others according to the flesh, according to their outward appearance, but we would cut to the heart. It's what Christ always has done, that he would cut to the heart of the matter. We would see people in a different light because of the work that Christ has done. We would look at them in the way that the Lord sees them. Ephesians four twenty 20-24 says, But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Again, the old is gone. The new has come. God has made you a new creation to do his will. In whatever you do that you would do to please and honor the Lord. Because he's good and he's faithful. Our life is not our own. but Our life is for him. Our perspective has to change the way we view others. That we would see them in this light and we would look to the substance of the heart, not the appearance of the flesh. Verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God reconciles us to himself. In his love for us, he reconciles us to himself. The reconciling work of God is found in and through Jesus and Jesus alone. The reconciling work was done through Jesus. You see, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. He alone is our assurance. He alone is our hope. Through the work that Jesus had done on the cross, God's wrath was appeased because it was poured on him. And in that, we are forgiven. Because of the work that Christ has done for us, we, objects of wrath, Christ has stood in our place. God's wrath was appeased, and we have been forgiven. This truth ought to leave us changed. We should not be left unmoved by this truth. That takes us back to where we began with the story of the incredible, remarkable statement that Brant Jean 18-year-old kid whose brother was killed, made. How could Brant forgive such an atrocity? How could he forgive Amber? Because Brant knew the price that was paid for his sin to be forgiven. You see, Brant obviously understood the cost that Christ had paid on the cross for him. He understood the weight and the gravity of the hold that that had on him. And he knew that he was a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. And he understood that he did nothing to merit or earn it or deserve it. But Christ said, I've called you and I've done it for you because of my love for you, and you have been forgiven. And that allows Brant to forgive Amber for such a horrendous wrong that had been done. And that forgiveness wasn't only for Amber, that forgiveness was for Brant as well. Right, it lightened his burden to carry because he was reminded, and this is what Christ has done for us, that we we have grievously Rejected the Lord and turned to our sin, our wicked ways. But God, being rich in mercy, that he came to save because of the love that he had for us. It changes everything, right? Forgiveness opens that door for us to be reconciled back to the Father. And it ought to lead us to forgive It ought to change the way we see others. And in this respect, we are ambassadors of Christ. That's what the text says here. That we are ambassadors of Christ, making his appeal through us. So what does that mean? Well, an ambassador is a representative of something or someone else. An ambassador, truly at its core, is like being an alien in a foreign land, an alien who has come to bear an image and bear a message on behalf of someone or something else that they think is better, that think is good, that you need to hear. They want to represent this with their whole life. An example of that is, um, I am an ambassador for Dr. Pepper and some of you have known me long enough to know that I love Dr. Pepper but that's true like it's really cool I I am an ambassador for Dr. Pepper and all that really means is that they send me a lot of cool stuff and I get to tell others about how great Dr. Pepper is okay like they send me product I get to taste test it I get to share my ideas but at the core of being an ambassador for Dr. Pepper what they want me to do right is to like post about it, talk about it, drink it all the time. I realized this morning as I was preaching, I have a cup that I always carry that has Dr. Pepper on it. That's not a statement. I'm not trying to brand every week for Dr. Pepper <laughs> promise, but it is delicious. It's great. So it's my <laughs> beverage of choice if you would like it. But the silly example about being an ambassador for Dr. Pepper is that the truth kind of helps us see what's going on here in the text. That we are meant to be ambassadors for Christ. We are ambassadors for, we represent Him. Our life is for Him. So that when others would see us, they would not see us, they would see the glory of who Christ has called us to be. So that He would be lifted high, that He would be made known. We are ambassadors who represent Jesus Christ. And what's beautiful about that is that the text says that God has given us the gift of the ministry of reconciliation. It's a gift that God has given us. Why is it a gift? Because it's only something that God himself can do. We can't reconcile ourselves. But God gives us the gift of the ministry of reconciliation that he implores us to tell others. He invites us to participate in reconciliation his reconciling work. How great is that? That God is perfect in every way, but yet what does the word say? That he makes his appeal through us. So if that's true, believer, you cannot be left unchanged. You are an ambassador for Christ and you ought to live in such a way that he would be made known so that others, too, would hear and believe and be reconciled back to the Father. That's what God has called us to do. That's the great and glorious truth and gift that we have been given, that we get to participate in God's work of reconciliation. Andrea Tom, a writer for the Gospel Coalition, amongst other things and books that she's put out, She said this in regards to this text. She said, we become recommissioned peacemakers, ambassadors of reconciliation to the watching world who longs for freedom from guilt themselves and wonders whether reconciliation could be a possible reality for them too. What we know is that we live in a lost and broken world. World in desperate need of hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know that others are searching for some sort of hope, something that would satisfy their soul, something that could fill them. And we have the only answer to that. We have the answer for what is our hope, what is our blessed assurance of the faith, that it's Christ himself and the work that he's done for us. And we bear that, right? This is amazing. This is what we've been called into. We cannot be led astray. We cannot live in a way that is unchanged. We've been given this gift, this ministry of reconciliation to a world who is longing to know him, dying to know him. So what do we do with that? I, th- I think there's a few things that we can just pause here and think through. Okay, if all of this is true, if God has reconciled us back to himself and he has given us the gift, of the ministry of reconciliation, what does that mean for us? How does this apply? Well, one and first and foremost simply is maybe you need to be reconciled to the Lord. Maybe God is calling you. So open your ears, so open your eyes and believe and hear the truth of the work that God has done for you, that he has called you into life so that you would walk in his ways, that you would be a new creation. Right? Repent and be saved. Well, the other call is simply what we've been talking about, right? As a believer, the call, if I've been given this gift, the ministry of reconciliation, that we should carry that so that others would know Christ and Christ would be magnified. But I think even deeper than that, this idea of the ministry of reconciliation takes root in every aspect of our lives. See, something you all know we say here at Redeemer, right? Our whole slogan, our statement is that we are broken people, loving broken people. We are are all in need of forgiveness. We are all messed up. But we are broken people, loving broken people. And so maybe the call for us as well is that we would reconcile with one another that we would reconcile our relationships with one another because maybe we've looked at somebody through an outward appearance. And we've looked at them on their flesh because we know what they've done. We know what they've walked through. Or maybe we've heard about it and we think we know. And so we just distance ourselves, right? The opposite of reconciliation is alienation. And so we alienate. That's not how it should be, believer. God has called us to reconcile, to look at the heart, to forgive. So maybe in this, maybe there's somebody here you need to reconcile with. Maybe you need to ask forgiveness. Maybe you need to forgive someone else. Believers, if the church would reconcile with one another, how different would we look? Especially to the outside lost world, wouldn't we look different and make more of an impact for his kingdom because we carry the ministry of reconciliation that we would cut to the heart of what the Lord has done for us. And so we reconcile with others. See, here's the truth. Here's the truth in all of this, of what the Lord has done for us, that, you see, Jesus wasn't powerful because Jesus had a message to give. Jesus was powerful because he was the message. Jesus was powerful because he himself was the word. He was the message. And so we too, believer, we have a message to give, but what are you doing with it? Are you sitting on it, saving it for yourself, going about unchanged or are you sharing the message? Are you being the message so that Christ would be made known? So that others may hear and believe. Well, Let's close on this last verse. Verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God, a beautiful, glorious truth. This is the heart of the message. This is the meat of the text here, that God's plan of reconciliation culminates in our redemption. God's plan of reconciliation, his work of reconciling us back to himself, ends in our redemption. What a great and glorious truth. You see to reconcile means to repair to make a relationship right again and God is doing a reconciling work in drawing us back to himself and he does that through our redemption in Jesus Christ to redeem means to buy back or claim ownership he has redeemed us from our sin galatians says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You see, the fruit of the reconciling work of God is our redemption in Jesus Christ. It's the fruit of it that we forever proclaim we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. This is the great and glorious truth of the gospel. Can we just let the gravity of that weigh heavy on us That should feel weighty, right? This is what we call substitutionary atonement. All substitutionary atonement means Christ stood in our place as a substitute for what we deserved. The great and glorious truth of the gospel that Christ himself stood in our place paying a debt that we could not afford. There was nothing that we could do to reconcile us back to Back to the Lord. So God Himself sent the Son to stand in our place, and it was finished. You see, God looks at the cross, and when He looks at the cross, He sees you. When He looks at you, God sees His Son. What does that mean? When God looks at the cross, He sees you on the cross, He sees all the sin of the world deserving of God's wrath, objects of God's wrath, and he's placed it on the shoulders of Christ, that Christ stood in our place, the one who was perfect, the one without blemish, but the only one that could do it. And out of his great love, Christ stands in our place as a substitute. And God looks at the cross, and on the cross he sees our sin, and he pours out his wrath. His wrath was appeased, and so, when God sees you, he sees his son. How beautiful is that? That when God looks at you, he sees his son in his righteousness. Right? That in him we might become the righteousness of God because of the atoning work, the substitutionary atonement happening at the cross. See, Christ took our sin upon himself and what he did in return was credit his righteousness to us. A beautiful truth that cannot leave us unchanged. See, while we are lost in our sin, Jesus said, you are mine. So hear the call. And be reconciled to God. Because he is our great redeemer. He is our joy and our salvation. As a believer, how can we not share that glorious truth? How can we not be unchanged? This text is a simple call. But sometimes we have to focus in deeper to see that we should look different than what we look at like right now when we understand the gravity and the weight of what the Lord has done for us, it will leave us unchanged. We have been bought. So if that's true, may we forever sing that glorious refrain. Redeem how I love to proclaim it. Redeem by the blood of the Lamb. Redeem. By his infinite mercy, his child, and forever I am. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. Father, we are so undeserving. But yet you loved us with such great love that you sent your son to die for us while we were yet sinners. So that we may become the righteousness of God in him. Father, would this glorious truth leave us unchanged? Would this do something in us? Father, so that we would see you, that we would hear and believe. So Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your love with which you loved us. Father, help us to turn to you. Help us to repent of our sin. Live according to your will and your purposes. Because, Father, we are in desperate need of you. So, Father, we confess this. Father, we plead, Father, with you. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.